0: Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Pastor and friends, for this privilege of preaching God's Word to you this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. I want to think with you just a little bit about prayer this morning. Now, you have prayed the Lord's Prayer, and you have uh, prayed an intercessory prayer along with your pastor as he's led you. And I want us to look to an intercessory prayer in the book of Ephesians. Have you ever thought about how much prayer there is in this little letter? Uh, If you look at the first chapter of Ephesians, almost the whole chapter is prayer. After Paul says hello to you in verses 1 and 2, verse 3 to verse 14 is all along prayer of praise. Then from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, it's a prayer of intercession. In fact, if you total it all up, if you count... The prayer reports, the prayer requests, the uh, exhortations to prayer, and the outlines of prayer in the little letter of Ephesians, half of the letter is prayer. And I want us to look at Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, one of the great intercessory prayers of the Apostle Paul. And by the way, if if you are a believer who feels that you need to grow in your practice of prayer, I can't give you a better piece of advice than this. Learn to pray the Bible back to God. If you want to improve your prayer life, learn to pray the Bible back to God. Uh, My colleague, Derek Thomas, who teaches at RTS and who's a pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, often says, if you want to humble a Christian, ask him about his prayer life. And it's true, we often feel as if our prayer life could use some improvement. And there's no better way to improve our practice of prayer than to learn to pray the Bible. And Paul's prayers are a good guide. Don Carson has written a book called A Call to Spiritual Reformation, which is just a study of Paul's prayers in his letters in the New Testament. And you can learn a lot about the practice of prayer, what to pray about, how to pray about it, from studying the prayers of Scripture. And so we're going to study one of these prayers of Scripture together this morning. And before we do, let's pray and ask for God's help and blessing. Heavenly Father, this is your word. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we know that every word from the mouth of God, all Scripture is given by inspiration, and is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness to equip us for every good work. So, Lord, speak. Your servants listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. What you pray about will tell you what you care about. What we pray about tells us a lot about what we care about most. You show me a Christian mother with a sick child, and I'll show you a woman who's praying for that child. Why is she praying? Because she loves that child. She cares about that child. That child matters to her. That's her flesh and blood, and she wants to lift that child up to the Lord. What we pray about shows us what we care about, and what Paul prays about shows you what he cares about. This is a prayer that he prayed for the Ephesian Christians in the congregation that he had once pastored and is now pastored by his protege, his son in the Lord, Timothy, and he's telling them I want you to know I pray these things for you. And so that tells you these are things that Paul really, really cares about. He really cares about believers understanding these things. And this morning, I want you to see four things in particular. We're only going to scratch the surface of this prayer. It is so rich, you'd have to have a sermon series on it to do it justice. But this morning, I've got time to show you four things out of this prayer. And I want you to understand that these four things are not disconnected things, they're all connected. The first petition leads to the second petition. The second petition leads to the third petition. The third petition leads to the fourth petition. It builds and compounds. And let me just go ahead and show you what to look for as we work through the prayer. In verse 16, notice that he prays that you would be strengthened by the Spirit. In verse 17, he prays that you would be indwelt by Christ. Again, at the end of verse 17, he prays that you would be rooted and grounded in Christ's love. And in verse 19, at the very end, he prays that you would be matured in God. Now, those are the four things that we're going to look at. He prays that you would be strengthened by the Spirit, verse 16. That you would be indwelt by Christ, verse 17 that you would be grounded in Christ's love, end of verse 17, and that you would be matured in God, verse 19, at the end. Those four petitions all hang together. The first petition leads to the second, the second leads to the third, the third leads to the fourth. Now, before we even begin looking at those prayers that Paul is praying for the Ephesians and for you, let's look at who he prays to. Don't skip over that. Look at verses 14 and 15. He prays to the Father. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. His prayer is to the Father. Just a few minutes ago, you prayed the Lord's Prayer. And that prayer was the prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples when they came to him and said, Lord, we would really like to learn how to pray like you pray. Tell us how you do it. And you remember what he said? When you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven. Paul is doing exactly what Jesus taught his earthly disciples to do when he begins praying to the Father. But notice also this prayer is a Trinitarian prayer. It mentions each of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In verse 14, he prays to the Father. Then, if you look at verse 16, that you would be strengthened by the Spirit, and then in verse 17, that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. So he prays to the Father that you would be strengthened by the Spirit, that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. The doctrine of the Trinity is not a doctrine that is meant only for really, really smart people to sit around and think about and write books about. It is a doctrine which is part of of the very essence of the practical living of the Christian life every day. In fact, we could summarize the whole of the Christian life with the doctrine of the Trinity. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. You've just summed up so much of the Christian life with those truths. We come to the Father through Jesus the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is a very practical truth. And it's woven into so much of what we see in the life of prayer in the New Testament. Now, what does Paul pray to the Father? Well, here's the first thing that I want you to see. Look at verse 16. He prays, notice what he says, verse 16, that the Father would grant you. So he's asking a petition. He's wanting the Father to grant you something. What does he want you to grant? What does he want the Father to grant you? To be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. So the first thing he asked for is that you would be strengthened by the Spirit. Now, uh, we're in a room full of professing Christians mostly. And if you're a professing Christian, you know that if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. The Spirit is not something that only super-Christians have. You're not a Christian if you don't have the Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the new birth. And so if we are believers, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel, we have the Spirit. So why is Paul asking that you would be strengthened with the Spirit? Because in the Christian life, we both have the Spirit and we need the Spirit. We both have the Spirit and we need the Spirit. And he is asking the Spirit to do something very specific, to strengthen you with power in your inner being, now that ought to get you just a little bit nervous. why is the Paul why is Paul praying that I would be strengthened? Does that mean that I 'm about to face a trial that i 'm going to need god 's strength for? It ought to make you just a little bit nervous when Paul starts praying that you would be strengthened in your inmost being with power. What does he want me to be strengthened for? but let me set your hearts at ease in this case it 's not for a trial you 're going to find out in the next two petitions why Paul wants you to be strengthened in your heart. And it's not in this case because of a trial you're about to go through. You remember in the Old Testament in Judges uh, chapter 16 verse 28 when Samson prayed his last prayer, what did he pray for? That God would strengthen him one more time. So he could do what? So he could bring judgment down on the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. Samson had wandered in his life. He had been unfaithful to the Lord. He had been blinded and captured and imprisoned and mocked by the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. And one last time, he asked a servant, put my hands on the pillars of this pagan temple. And then he prays, God, strengthen me one more time. What did Samson want power for? He wanted power in in order to be able to bring judgment down on the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. So leave that question in your mind. Why does Paul want me to have power? But before you go on and start thinking about that, think about this. Paul is acknowledging that for us to live the Christian life, we do need power within us that we do not have in and of ourselves. We need power that comes from outside of us. We need power that comes from the Holy Spirit. If you've ever watched a Tony Robbins infomercial, no doubt you have seen Tony Robbins encourage you to awaken the giant within you. That's the opposite of Christian teaching. Christian teaching says, first of all, the giant within you is one that we have is plenty awake, and that's our problem. Uh, What we need to live life is not a latent power within us that needs to be actualized. We need power outside of us from God the Holy Spirit to help us live the Christian life. And so Paul is asking that the Spirit's power would enable us to live the Christian life. The Christian life is spiritually, is spiritually dependent. We are, dis, we are dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit for every breath. I was telling my students in class this weekend, probably my most frequent prayer is, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. And that prayer expresses the fact that we are dependent upon the Lord to live the Christian life. And Paul is saying, Lord, they need power in their inmost being from the Holy Spirit, so that they can live the Christian life. So there's his first petition, that you would be strengthened by the Holy Spirit with power. Keep asking, what for? Well, he'll begin to tell you in the very next petition. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants you to be strengthened with power by the Spirit in your inmost being, so that Christ will dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, just like we have the Spirit and need the Spirit, so often, so also Christians have Christ and we need Christ. You might say, why is he praying for Christ to dwell in my heart? I thought that I had already been changed in my heart by Jesus. I thought I'd already been united to Christ, that I was trusting and resting in him because I've been united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. But Paul praise that Christ would dwell in your hearts by faith. What's he asking for? Well, the Puritans used to say that this was a prayer that Christ would be formed in the hearts of believers so that they would become a suitable habitation for Christ. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? It's a prayer that Christ would be formed in the hearts of believers so that we would become a suitable habitation for Christ. In other words, this is a prayer that our hearts and the desires of our hearts would be transformed by the indwelling of Christ so that we begin to love the things that Jesus loves and desire the things that Jesus desires. The Christian life is really fought at the level of desires. You know, so often we find ourselves setting our desires on something other than God, wanting something other than what God tells us and promises us in the Word. We've actually sung about that and prayed about in the confession this morning, that very struggle in the Christian life. We start thinking, you know, this thing, Lord, that I don't have, If I had that, I would be truly happy. And our desires get set on that. And we start caring about that more than we care about God and His promises and His providence and His provision for us. And the Christian life is fought at the level of the desires. Very often we have set our hearts on something and we're almost addicted to it. And you can't fight those kinds of desires by merely saying, stop it. Stop wanting that. Stop doing that. An old Scottish preacher said, if we're going to fight those kinds of desires, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, he was saying this. If you're going to fight a sinful desire, the only way to fight it is with a greater godly desire. And Paul is saying, I want the Spirit to so strengthen you that Christ dwells in your heart and transforms that heart so that you become consumed with Christly desires, that you begin to love the things that Jesus loves. You begin to desire the things that Jesus desired, and you fight your sinful desires with the greater desires that have been implanted in you by Jesus Christ. He wants your heart transformed by the indwelling of Christ. Imagine a young couple that has bought their first home. It's a small home, and very frankly, it's a dump. You go by, and they say, it's a fixer-upper, and the bubble above your head is, this is not a fixer-upper, it's a dump. But you know that they're a hard-working couple, and that he's pretty handy, and she's got really good taste. And over a couple of years, every time you pass by that house, when they're home from work, they are working on that house. They're working on the inside. They're working on the outside. They're working in the yard. They're working in the attic. They're working everywhere. And a couple of years later, you go by and you visit the home, and it is amazing. You are thinking, this place has been transformed. And not only that, you're thinking, you know, this house looks like her. This is, this is just what I would have thought how she would have decorated the house. It, in other words, the house has become, it, it started to take on something of the character, of the tastes and the tendencies of this young wife who has been working hard for a couple of years to transform this fixer-upper into a nice home. Well, Paul wants the Holy Spirit to so cause Christ to dwell in your heart that your heart is transformed by the indwelling of Christ. And it becomes, as the Puritan says, a suitable habitation for Christ. You look at that heart and you say, you know, that heart looks like a place where Jesus could find himself at home. Then he prays, look at the next petition, verse 17 That you, notice these that's that introduce the petitions, I pray that you would be granted the spirit to be strengthened with power, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now, this petition actually runs from verse 17 all the way to the beginning of verse 19, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Now this is a prayer for your grounding in Christ's love. Paul is asking that by the work of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, by the indwelling of Christ, you would come to apprehend Christ's love for you. And he asks it in the most striking way. Did you notice what he said there at the beginning of verse 19? Verse 19 that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, grant that these Asian Christians would know something that is beyond their capacity to know. Grant that they would know a love which is unknowable. Grant that they would know a love that is beyond the capacity of human language to describe or express or understand. It's clearly the language of experience. He wants you to experience Christ's love for you. Now, you have been singing about God's love for you repeatedly this morning. But you you know a secret? There are a lot of wonderful Christians who struggle with knowing God's love for them. They say it. They really believe it. They really believe that God loves them. But they have a hard time taking that in. I've had the privilege of doing weddings for 25 years now. And when you do weddings, you get to do premarital counseling as pastors. And in the course of premarital counseling, one of the questions that I almost always ask, and I typically will ask it to the young woman in the couple, um, I'll say, would you permit me to ask a fairly personal question? And if I'm granted permission to ask that kind of a personal question, I say, do you really feel your fiancé's love for you? And sometimes a young woman will answer that question. Uh, There'll be a sublime smile on her face, and she will say, maybe with a little bit of embarrassment, yes, yes, I do. He, he really loves me well, and I, I, I do feel his love for me. And when a young woman answers that way, I typically know two things. One, I know that her daddy loved her well. Uh, because a young woman learns what it is to be treated in a loving and respectful way by a man, by her father loving her that way, and, by, and watching her father love her mother. And so typically when a young woman says, yes, I, I do feel my fiancé's love, I know that she's had a good daddy, a daddy who's loved her well, or, or some significant man, maybe a grandfather or someone in her life, to show how a woman is appropriately treated. Secondly, I know that he, her fiancé, must be doing a pretty good job. In other words, he's studied her well. He's become a student of her. He's learned how to express love to her in such a way that it gets through. It is an amazing thing when a woman gives her heart to a man, but it's a choice she has to make, and her capacity to receive that love is very much conditioned by experiences that she has had prior to that relationship. And so I often it gives me joy in my heart when a young woman says, yes, I do know that he loves me. But very often, even with very godly young women, I'll get this answer. I really want to. I really want to feel his love, but I struggle there. And when I get that answer, I usually know that she has not experienced the kind of earthly human love that God intends a woman to experience, maybe from her father or from the significant male figures in her life. She's not been loved that way. And so she, she struggles, even though her fiancé is doing his best to love her, she struggles to take it in. She struggles to feel it. Well, it's amazing how many Christians struggle to really apprehend the love of God in Christ for them. And so Paul is saying, now you're beginning to understand why Paul prayed that you would be strengthened with power So that you would be able to know a love that surpasses knowledge. Paul really, really wants Christians to know that love. Why? Look at the final petition. End of verse 19. So that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I've been meditating on that verse for 30 years, and I still don't know everything that it means. That is, that is an amazing phrase, isn't it? That you, a believer, would be filled with all the fullness of God. If I had said that, and if it weren't in Scripture that I was praying for that, you would rightly be able to accuse me of heresy. You know, I, I, that would sound like some crazy teaching, to pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, so I don't know everything that that verse means, but I do know that it at least means this. Paul is praying... That we would be matured into the fullness of what our God and Father is like. That, That God would conform us to His character. That He would mature us in His love so that we bear His image. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were created in Genesis 1? It says that they were created how? In the image and likeness of God. Right? So they were made in God's image. They reflected in who they were and how they lived what God is like. And when Satan came to tempt even Adam, what did he say to her? If you will break God's law, if you will take that fruit, if you will eat it, you will become like God. Do you remember he said that? What should even Adam have said to Satan? We already are like God! What do you mean if I'll rebel against God, I'll become like him? We already are like him. We are made in his image and likeness. And when they took the fruit, did they become more like God? No, they did not. They became less like God when they took that fruit. Now, the image of God was not lost to them. It was not erased, but it was effaced. It was marred. It was sullied. And in redemption, what is God doing? One of the things that God is doing is he is restoring his image in us so that we look like the God who loves us and who saved us. If you come visit my house, you will see a picture in one of my rooms. And it's a picture of a man in a uniform about 19 years old and a man in a blue blazer and what's obviously a college picture about 19 years old. And almost everybody that sees the picture says, hey, Lig, I didn't know that you were in the military, pointing to the man in the uniform. And I say, no, I wasn't in the military. That's my dad from Union, South Carolina, where Mike's from. And uh, that's when he's 19 years old. He's a Marine Corps sergeant getting ready to be shipped out to the South Pacific in the Second World War. And that's me at 19 at Furman University. And I know the next thing they're going to say. The next thing they're going to say is, you look just like your dad. And I love it when they say that. Because I had a wonderful father who loved me well, and I am not half the man that he is. And um, I love it when they say that I look like my father. And Paul is praying here, Christian, I want you to be strengthened with power by the Spirit so that Christ dwells in your heart by faith, so that you are rooted and grounded in Christ's love, so that when people see you, they say, what kind of a father must she have? She must have an amazing father. He must have an amazing father. They look morally like their father. They've been conformed to the image of their father. Paul's asking for us to be matured in God. Do you understand that the love of Christ actually matures us? In that book that I mentioned earlier in the message, Don Carson's A Call to Spiritual Reformation, he tells the story of a colleague of his at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School who was, he and his wife were foster parents. You know, foster parents will take infant children into their home, keep them for a few days or weeks until the Department of Social Services places those children in permanent, loving, adoptive Homes, And they just viewed it as one of the ways that they could serve as Christians, their community. And they did it for about 20 years. They had 20 infants in their home over the course of 20 years. And um, one day, the Department of Social Services called them up and said, we've got a little bit different case. We've got twin boys, and they're not infants. They're 18 months old. And we'd like them to stay with you, not for just a few weeks, but maybe for six months. Would you be willing to do that? And he and his wife prayed about it, and they said, sure. And the boys ended up being in their home, not for six months, but for two years. And the first night that they put the boys to bed, they put them in their room, down the hall, and then they walked back into the living room, and they heard something strange. Nothing. Okay, twin, 18-month-old boys put in bed at bedtime, and you don't hear anything? They're up to something. And so they went creeping back down the hall to see what they were up to, and they were both still in bed but they had the pillows over their faces and they were sobbing uncontrollably. Now, it was the first night, it was a strange home, but when that family talked with the department of social services, the social worker said, "Okay, I've got to tell you. These boys have been in nine different homes and in most of those homes they've been abused. And in our psychological testing, we don't we think they have been profoundly and maybe permanently Damage. They're, they're not going to respond with a normal range of affect to adults because of the abuse that they've already experienced in their first 18 months. Well, those little boys were with the Downs, Perry and Sandy Downs, for two years, and then they were placed into a permanent adoptive home. And when the social worker was doing the post-testing, she said to the Downs, you will not believe what has happened to these boys. They are responding in the normal range of emotional intelligence and affect that you would hope for boys that were now at that time three years old or so. And what had happened? They had experienced love in the home like God intended parents to love their children. And what had it done? It had literally matured them. Jim Hurley, my colleague in the marriage and family therapy program were here, he would explain how it would literally have changed their brain biology. Their brain would have changed because of being loved. That is how the love of God matures us. Once you have known the love of God, once you have known the love of God, he's got you. He has got you, and you have got the power then to fight the Christian life to fight against sinful desires, to fight against the world of flesh and the devil because you've been matured by the love of God. And that's what Paul wants us to have. He wants us to have strength from the Holy Spirit so that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith, so that we're rooted and grounded in Christ's love, so that we're matured, we're grown in grace. And then that allows us to give ourselves away in love to unloving people, And to an unlovely world. Because we're not depending on what we get back from them to love them. We've gotten love from our Heavenly Father that we can now give away to others. Isn't this a great prayer? It's my prayer for you too. And I'd like to pray it for you right now. So let me ask you to bow your heads with me. And I'll pray this prayer for you. Heavenly Father, I bow my knees before you in awe and regard knowing that you rule every family in heaven and earth, and I ask that you would grant in proportion to your glorious riches and limitless resources to the Christians here in this congregation four things. That they would be given power by your Spirit in order to be strengthened in their inmost beings. That their hearts would be so Jesus-shaped that their desires and dispositions would be conformed to Him by faith. That they would be so grounded in the experience of Christ's love that they would begin to understand it and become, come to be defined by it. And that they would be brought to a full Christian maturity and come to more fully bear the image and likeness of God in all that they are, think, desire, say, and do. And all of these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.